Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. We're continuing a series of programs that focus on everyday wisdom for life. I'm sharing a few things that I wish I'd known earlier in my journey. I hope you'll find them helpful. When it comes to wisdom, if we're going to get it and apply it to our situations, surely we'll need to adopt an attitude of learning. And that takes humility. Humility seems to be somewhat short of supply in our culture. It seems that we tend to think of ourselves as more sophisticated than those who have gone before us. C.S. Lewis had a term to describe this rather puffed-up attitude. He called it chronological snobbery. I love that phrase. According to Lewis, writing in his classic book, Surprised by Joy, chronological snobbery is the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. In other words, we just think we know better. Professor Alan Bloom, writing in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, challenges the idea that we must automatically be wiser than our ancestors. He says, My grandparents were ignorant people by our standards, and my grandfather held only lowly jobs. But their home was spiritually rich, because all the things done in it, not only was what was specifically ritual, but they found their origin in the Bible's commandments and their explanation in the Bible's stories and the commentaries on them. And they had their imaginary counterparts in the deeds of the myriad of exemplary heroes. Bloom continues, My grandparents found reasons for the existence of their family and the fulfillment of their duties in serious writings, and they interpreted their special sufferings with respect to a great and nobling past. And then Alan Bloom brings this knockout punch. He says, I do not believe that my generation, my cousins who have been educated in the American way, all of whom are MDs or PhDs, have any comparable learning to that of my grandparents. When they talk about heaven and earth, the relations between men and women, parents and children, the human condition, I hear nothing but cliches, superficialities, the material of satire. Wow. Now, that's a challenge. So, if I may, let me invite you to continue to spend a few minutes with me as I share a couple more insights that I hope might just be helpful. Things I wish I'd known. I wish I'd known that opening doors for others, it's a good thing to do. Being a man and trying to be polite with it, it can be challenging these days. On the tube, I'm never sure whether I should offer my seat to a lady. Will she smile and thank me or screamingly announce to the entire carriage that I'm a patronising misogynist? The dilemmas continue. Upon opening a door for a woman the other day and saying, after you, I was treated to an icy glare rather than a nod of appreciation. I wasn't suggesting that she was incapable of turning the handle. I just thought a good-mannered gesture might be welcome and I was quite wrong. And it was awkward. But I like people who open doors for others. One of those people changed my life. Forty years or so ago, my family relocated to a rather isolated area of America, a place where real men drove trucks, wore baseball caps, chewed gum and went deer hunting. Some of them even wore camouflage pyjamas, ensuring that they would be suitably dressed should they ever encounter Bambi in their sleep. 
We were bewildered by the relocation and we felt very alone. The culture was so very foreign to us. And then we met Milton and Barbara. They opened the doors of their home to us, literally. Needing somewhere to live while we looked for a house to rent, they gave our young family far more than a space in their home. Their gift was a place in their hearts. With grandparents thousands of miles across the ocean, they adopted our family. Milton hailed from the deep south, and with his white moustache and gentle drawl, he looked like a cast member from Gone with the Wind. We didn't know many people in our new homeland, and so Milton and Barbara opened up their friendship circle to include us too. Their folks became our folks. We were family, and we still are. A couple of years ago, Milton discovered that he was going to see Jesus rather sooner than he'd anticipated. An inoperable cancer meant that he had very little time to live. He asked his doctor, a mutual friend, to call us with the news. We were shattered. A few minutes later, we chatted with Milton on the phone. That warm southern tone was unwavering. We told him how much we loved him and gave him firm instructions that however much he was anticipating heaven, we needed him to hang on until we could get to see him and Barbara. A sumptuous farewell dinner was planned, a feast to celebrate his life before his death and homecoming. And yes, we were praying for healing, but we were also making preparations to say goodbye in case the healing wasn't to happen. We were hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. Before we had made that phone call, I was scrambling for words to comfort and encourage Milton, words that, it turned out, they were completely unnecessary. There's no problem here, Brother Jeff, he said. We're good. Everything is fine. I'm going to a place where time doesn't exist as we know it, so that means that very soon we'll all be together again. It's just I'm getting there ahead of you all. But don't worry, I'll be waiting and I'll, I'll hold heaven's door open for you. We had that farewell meal, which was beautiful, and not just because of Barbara's marvellous culinary gifting. We remembered days long gone and we laughed and we cried, and then Kay and I knelt before Milton and asked for his blessing. With the care that characterised him for decades, he spoke with special kindness about the way that Kay had stood faithfully beside me, ever supportive through the years. He had special words of encouragement for her. Once again, he opened the door of unexpected kindness and recognition. Now, in Milton telling us that he was going to hold open the door of heaven for us, the reality is, I don't know who heaven's doorman is. Tradition has that St. Peter, the fisherman-turned-keyholder, is parked at the pearly gates and I don't think he's nervous that Milton is after his job. But what I do know is this. In life, Milton has been a door opener and he wants to continue in the job. And rather than just admiring and celebrating my lovely friend, I'd like to follow his example and be someone who opens doors for others, doors to joy, to opportunity, to laughter, to understanding. I'd like to be a door opener myself, following a Jesus who calls himself the door as well as the way, I'd like to be a bit more like him. I have set before you an open door, Jesus said to one of the seven churches found in the book of Revelation. 
And in a way that none of us can ever fully grasp, Jesus opened the door to eternity with God at the cross. He who was first put himself last and beckoning sinful humanity, he gestured with open arms and whispered, after you. My friend Milton at last went home to be with Jesus. His suffering now is ended. Pain was a constant companion as his life here drew to a close, but he faced it with faith and courage. When I phoned him a few days before his death, effectively to say a final goodbye, he seemed amazed that I was making transatlantic contact. Well, bless your heart, brother Jeff. I can't believe it. It's so good to hear your voice. The pain was so intense that he dropped the phone during the conversation. And lovely Barbara, his wife, she stood by his side through it all. Milton is with Jesus now, and one of these days when the millions gather as we all see the glorious Christ face to face, I'm going to track Milton down and share that familiar hug. I wonder how I might find him, one man among the many millions. Perhaps that warm southern drawl would stand out. But then I realised a possibility. I know just where I'll find you, Milton. You'll be right there at the door. I wish I'd known that God isn't endlessly chatty. You know that frustrating moment? You're having an important conversation with a friend on your cell phone when suddenly the line goes dead, usually at the critical moment when they're just about to tell you that the baby's been born, the stock market has collapsed, something really important and frantic. You yell into the phone, hello, hello, are you there? It's patently obvious that they're not. Perhaps you even shake the phone as if agitating a digital chip will cause it to function more efficiently. And let me tell you, it does not. Finally, we resign ourselves to reality because the call has dropped and we are left with nothing but the ominous sound of silence. Irritating. After over four decades of following Jesus, I've heard countless claims that God has spoken to people and, let's be clear, I'm not denying that he does. He has spoken to me with life-altering results on a number of occasions. And the Bible lists numerous examples of God speaking to humans. He talks. It's just that I'm not convinced that he is as talkative as some Christians make out. And when we suggest otherwise, a number of things happen. When God is painted as someone who is endlessly conversational, faith can be trivialized. If the king of the universe can tell me where to find a parking space, could he not also whisper a cure for cancer, a plan to tackle global warming that everyone will sign up to, or a way to deal with those monstrous flag-waving terrorists? Of course, in the face of the world's problems, any report of God speaking to us first world folks can seem strange. And if he is truly interested in helping his people park efficiently, then who am I to question that? It's just that I often find myself wishing that the content of God's reported conversations with Christians would be just a little more weighty. Let's also consider those who don't seem to have a super-fast internet connection to an endlessly chatty heaven, feeling guilty about their apparent lack of hearing. What's wrong with them? Silence could suggest stony silence, an attitude behind or a reason for the silence. Perhaps we've upset the other party who aren't talking to us. We're being ignored, shut out, or so we feel. 
In times past, I've told other Christians that I've found God to be quieter than I anticipated, only to be informed, sometimes tersely, that I just don't listen to him hard enough. Thanks a lot. I'm so glad I shared. Anyone who's been around Christianity for long knows that foolishness is often justified by tossing down the ace card in the believer's pack, the God told me move. When we insist that we're acting in response to a divine command, we quickly shut down the possibility of being told that we're wrong because God has stamped our plans with his approval, or so we declare. Who are others to disagree? But discerning the voice of God isn't always easy. I'm encouraged by that Bible story of young Samuel, who, when woken up by the voice of God, repeatedly woke up Eli. He heard a voice, but was confused about the source. I recently heard a preacher announce that God is always talking to us 24-7. We need to listen more. But surely that's a rather ludicrous statement. What can God possibly want to chatter on about endlessly? And I'm not being irreverent here. Just imagine being around any person who never, ever stopped talking. Let's be honest, they wouldn't be our friend for long. Of course, there's the pendulum swing reaction to the craziness that comes when we automatically dismiss anyone who says, God has said. But these days, I'm becoming more content with those seasons that are marked by the sound of silence. It reminds me that now is not all that there is, that a day is coming when our blurred vision of Jesus, myopic because today we see him by faith, that will be corrected because we will see him as he is and hear him clearly, undistracted by the noise of life this side of eternity. That silence can draw me back to the strong, secure voice of Scripture. I'm nudged to consider as well that his voice might be discovered in unexpected places, like that kind email I received recently or that walk in the country. And I'm heartened by the late great Oswald Chambers' encouragement that sometimes God trusts us with silence. But let's not allow this admission to block our ears. While we shouldn't be unnerved by silence, still we should posture ourselves for the possibility of his voice. We remember that it was young Samuel who prayed, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. While frequent silence no longer causes me anxiety, when God wants to break the silence, I want to be all ears. As we've been thinking again about simple aspects of wisdom for living, let me bring us back to the ultimate source of wisdom, of course. That would be Jesus. We can delude ourselves into thinking that if we just read enough books, speak to enough wise people, be mentored, then we'd automatically live wisely. And all those things are good and well, but let's remember that those of us who call ourselves Christians are disciples. Another word would be apprentices, apprentices of Jesus. He's described by the Apostle Paul as Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1.24. So if you're one of his friends and followers, as you navigate this new week, stay close to him. And if you're not, why not ask him to be your friend, your rescuer, your Lord? I can guarantee this, you won't be turned away. Have a lovely week and I'll see you next time. Lucas on Life.